I was thinking beforehand, I, I know people who've been on six-month courses who've discussed what we're going to be discussing tonight. And uh, I've spent this whole churches who teach for a whole year on some of the things. So trying to fit this in two hours is going to be quite difficult. So I think what we're trying to do is just to give you a taster, a kind of a primer on, on intercession and spiritual warfare, and um, hopefully kind of whet your appetite to, to look into it more, or as a church we look into it more. Um, I wanted to start off, you've got a handout, uh, which is, the top of it says, Eight Principles of Spiritual Warfare. So if you could just pull that out. And I want to start by exploring a little bit more what Gary was talking about, the spiritual realm. Because if you're anything like me, when people talk about the spiritual realm, it's something that I'm, I'm dimly aware of. These eight foundations are from um, a guy called Greg Wiley from a, a school called the School of Worship and spiritual warfare. Um, so it's not my notes. But, but I think one of the key things is, how do we become more aware of the spiritual realm around us? We live in quite a secular society, quite a rationalist society, and any talk of you know, a spiritual realm is so quickly dismissed by the people around us, or even mocked. For us to pursue it is kind of so counter to our culture. And yet to be effective in praying and in doing spiritual warfare, even in worship, it's just absolutely essential. Well, there's a really helpful story from 2 Kings, chapter 6. And it's about the prophet Elisha. And the prophet Elisha, uh, or the kingdom of Israel, is in a battle with the Arameans. And the king of Aram is waging war against Israel. But every time the king of Aram plans to ambush the Israelite army, um, the prophet Elisha tips the king of Israel off, so he goes a different way. And the king of Aram is getting very frustrated with this. He thinks there's an insider in his own government, with his own council, who's tipping off Israel. But it's not. It's, it's Elisha hearing from God. And so when the king of Aram gets wise to this, and realizing it's, it's Elisha, he sends all his armies to Dothan, the city where Elisha is. And they surround the city with their chariots and their warriors. And the story goes that, well, reading between the lines, Elisha is very calm about it. His servant is very nervous about it and sees the army and says, why aren't you worried about this? And um, Elisha says this, or prays this, to the Lord for his servant in verse 17 of 2 Kings chapter 6. Open his eyes that he may see. Open his eyes that he may see. And the eyes of the servant are opened and he's able to see into the spiritual realm, and what he sees are armies and chariots of fire all surrounding the hills of where this army is. And so he's now able to see what Elisha can see, why Elisha is confident, because the armies of God, the angels, the angelic angels, warriors, are so much greater than the earthly armies that are surrounding them. And the story goes on, the the Arameans are struck blind and Elisha leads them away and he leads them into the Israelite king. But I think we need to pray that prayer for all of us. You know, Lord, open my eyes so that I can start to see what's going on in the realm that I can't see. Open my eyes so that I can start to understand what resources are at God's disposal that are there for us, and also see what the enemy's tactics, so that we're not just fighting blindly. Imagine a boxer going into a boxing ring against an opponent that's equally matched to him, and then he's blindfolded. 
Well, that's what it can feel sometimes like in spiritual warfare, unless we're able to open up our eyes to see what's going on. And I think one of the keys of that, it, it kind of sounds daunting, but I think worship is a real key to being able to see what's going on. And as we get into worship, as we just come into God's presence and saturate ourselves with being in his presence, we start to become more comfortable about what's going on in the spiritual realm. And as we especially read that with passages about, like in Revelation, about what's happening in the heavens, we start to become more comfortable with this spiritual realm. And from that position, we can then start to engage a bit more in in intercession and warfare. Why is this so important? Well, if we carry down this sheet, um, it just says, this war that we're in, this spiritual warfare, it's not just about the church. It's about the destiny of the world. It's about the destiny of what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening with IS, what's happening in um, the horrible stuff that's happening in our country with child abuse. It's what's happening in South America with, um, you know, women getting killed by drug land, drug barons. So many things on the news. There's a spiritual realm, there's a spiritual battle behind what we see in the news. And if we just pray for peace to come, which is great, without engaging as well with what's happening behind the scenes, then we're not really addressing the issue. So the war, it says in, in the second point, this war is very evil. And the results have eternal consequences. And it involves these things. The lostness of people. Bondages, addictions, broken lives and families and relationships. Wars, sicknesses, strongholds. But, but God is our commander-in-chief. As, as Gary said, if whatever we start with in spiritual warfare doesn't start with worship and just acknowledging that God himself is on the throne room. God is the commander-in-chief. It's like that wonderful picture in, in Joshua, it's a wonderful story in Joshua 5. I made a mistake there. It says the battle is more than ours. It says Joshua 4. That should be Joshua 5. It's where Joshua comes to Jericho in the night, and as he's going, he encounters this man of war in front of him. And Joshua says to him, are you for us or for our enemies? And the man says, I'm not for either of you. It's, the, it's the, the angel of the Lord. It might even be Jesus himself. The battle belongs to God. Do we join him in his battles and align ourselves with his purposes? Because I think for me so often, it's me, my personal battles and asking God to join in, where that's not, that's not, it's what are the battles that God's fighting? And he invites us to align us, align ourselves with him, to join him in that. Um, I'm not going to go into more things on that sheet. You can take that away and, and read that. But I just wanted to stress, I think the most important thing for us as Western Christians is let's just pray for one another, open up our eyes to see what's going on in the spiritual realm so that we become more comfortable with it. Um, I want to look at tonight, and, and Bob is going to bring some great stories, two key positions for spiritual warfare. And uh, the first one is, is simply using that word standing. A key position of standing. And it's the kind of picture of a soldier holding the ground. When the enemy's coming against him, holding his ground, defending his position. 
And in the Bible, it's related to key words like resisting, um, standing and standing firm. Gary read that well-known passage from Ephesians 6, and I think it's four times Paul uses that phrase, stand, stand firm, stand strong in the Lord. And it's all to this thing of standing on solid ground and defending. And I think it's, what I want to bring out is it's this learning to fight for what's really important to us. Learning to fight for what belongs to us. Learning to fight for what's been given to us. That, that I'm going to put a stake in the ground and I'm going to defend this because these people and these things belong to me. So it's standing for our families, our children, it might be our grandchildren, it might be our parents, it might be our church, it's our friends. It's the, the neighbours that we have around us, but it's recognising there's a spiritual battle going on here. It might be sickness, it might be despair, it might be depression, but I'm going to put a stake in the ground and say, I'm standing against what's coming against us because some things are too important to just let go and say, que sera, what will be, will be. Some things are too important. Um, in the book of Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah has, has been sent back or given permission to come back from exile in Persia to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The, uh, the temple's already been rebuilt or partially rebuilt, but the walls are still derelict. And as Nehemiah is overseeing the, the remnant of people that have come back, um, the people who were there before them, are intimidating them, are, are slandering them, doing all kinds of things to put them off from rebuilding the walls. And uh, the people of the rem- the people who've returned are really intimidated, and the rebuilding the wall has been interrupted. And then there's this part in in Nehemiah four, and it's Nehemiah relating the story, and he says, "When our enemies heard that their plot was known to us, their plot to intimidate them." And that God had frustrated. We all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and and body armor. And the leaders posted themselves behind the whole house of Judah, who were building the wall. The burden bearers carried their loads in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and with the other hand held a weapon. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. And it's a picture of people working together and also fighting one another, watching one another's backs. And I think that's the picture I'm trying to build up here of standing together. You know, we belong to one another. When one of us suffers, then we stand alongside that other person. When our children are going through a hard time, then we want to stand with them, resist the enemy if that's appropriate, and fight for them in the place of prayer. There's that... Um, I'm, I've been sworn that I'm not going to re- do much to reference to the Lord of the Rings tonight. Cause so I promised Sarah that I wouldn't mention it. But there is one bit I want to... If you know um, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first film, there's that classic part where they're going underneath the mountain and they're being chased by the orcs. Everybody familiar? Who's not familiar with that? <laughs> um, and suddenly this creature from the depth of the mountain called... Bal... Balrog, thank you, comes up. And they're crossing the bridge, and Gandalf puts his sword and his staff in the ground, and he says these words. You cannot pass, he said, 
The orc stood still, and a dead silence fell. I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame. You cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Uden. Go back to the shadow. You cannot pass. He screams it, actually. You cannot pass. And that's... Sometimes we just need to put a stake in the ground and say, you shall not pass. Amen. Yeah, I'm going to ask Barbara. We want to make this as practical as possible and to bring in testimonies of how this has worked in in our own lives. So I've asked Barbara to share one thing about this thing of standing for what belongs to us. Yes, it's just one story. Like, as Rick says, you know, we're in a battle, but... Yes, I think I, I really, really want to encourage you, really, with that story. It's actually really simple. But, you know, if you've been praying for someone for a long time and nothing's happening, don't give up. And to to explain that is... You know, before we moved to Homestead, I had the great joy of having a dishwasher that was wonderful. And <laughs> and one day I came in the kitchen, you know, like this, thinking, right, I need to put all these in a dishwasher. So I came from the dining room into the kitchen, and there was no space anywhere where I could put my dirty dishes. It's like, whoa, there's nowhere, what am I going to do? And so I had to turn around, put everything back in the dining room, go in the kitchen, clear the worktop, empty the dishwasher from the clean stuff, and there's loads of things I had to do before I could clear up the table. And sometimes when you pray, you might not feel God's giving you the answer you want because you want to put things straight in the dishwasher, but actually you still need to clean your kitchen before you can do that. And um, that story is just an example. I'd been praying for my dad for a long time when I was about, I think, 21, 22, and... Um, I was like, why is he not becoming a Christian? Why is he not talking to me? Why? Because he'd left a very long time ago and I had no contact with him. And that was hard. And then Jesus spoke to me so clearly, and I believe that's spiritual warfare. He spoke to me, he said, oh, he had given me the promise, you and your family will be saved. So I was like proclaiming this, me and my family will be saved, and I believe it's true, but I cannot see it. And in the end, Jesus spoke to me about my dad. He said, you know, perfect love casts out all fear. And what's stopping him from coming in my kingdom is fear. He's really afraid. And Jesus spoke to me and said, I want you to write a letter to him. I was like, what? It's like I haven't spoken to him in so long. But he really placed a letter in my heart. And I obeyed God and I wrote this letter. And then I had kind of just this picture, you know, sometimes... You have a promise from God here, and the fulfillment is here. And very rarely it goes, woo, like this. It's very often little steps of obedience, and every time you take a step of obedience, it just goes closer and closer and closer to the promise, to the fulfillment. So I don't know why God's asking you today, but you don't know what's happening in the spiritual world. You don't know what strongholds, what lies people believe. But for me, my dad, he was believing a lot of lies. And when I wrote that um, letter, it came completely against everything he was believing. And I thank God because it actually restored the relationship, which there's no way I could have foreseen that. It restored, it made us much closer than we go on talking terms again. And uh, he's still not a Christian, but he's much closer. And uh, so that was just one story. I don't know. So...
just checking. I have said everything that I wanted to say about this one. Yeah, I think just the other thing that I wanted just to add about that story is that um, every time you do an act of obedience, it changes your heart. And I think that's part of spiritual warfare as well, that your heart gets changed. You become more and more like Jesus. And I think Rick will say a great quote, but it's it's one of my favorite where it says, the victory starts with the name of Jesus upon your lips, but it's consummated with the name with the nature of Jesus in your heart. And um, spiritual warfare is not up there somewhere. It's is in your is also you know what you do in obedience to God as well as up there actually. Thank you, Barbara. That's excellent. And I think picking up from what Barbara said, sometimes we don't pray because the because the thing just seems so big. How can I possibly pay for this? And um, one thing I'm learning, perhaps not very well, but learning is that. We don't need to pray for the big thing. We just need to pray what God puts on our heart to pray and obedient. And then it's, I've heard other people saying, it's like my assignment. God's given me this prayer assignment to pray for something to do with the Middle East or something. And when I've done it, I can rest and say, well, I've done. Or it might be a prophetic act that God tells me to do for the neighborhood I live in about just declaring peace. I don't need to see my neighbourhood changed. I'm just being obedient to what God told me to do and I can rest in that he will bring the fruit out of that. So when things seem too big, I think if we break them down into I'm just going to do what God's told me to do, then it makes it so much more easy. Easy? That's not the right word. Tangible. Thank you. Um, the next bit on your on your handouts, it says some key spiritual weapons. Again, this is for your reference to take away. I'm not going to go through it. There's far too much there. But I just wanted to pick out the first and the last one because they're probably very unusual. And we, we don't really think of spiritual warfare in terms of us responding in the opposite spirit or our identity in Christ. That's the first one on the list and the last one. But I think those are the two most important and most used weapons at our disposal for disarming the enemy. Uh, at the top of the page it says, the quote from 2 Corinthians 10.35, our weapons are not the weapons of this world. It's not fighting against other people, even when they annoy us, even when they're wrong. It's not fighting against them. Rather that... Um, Rather, it's the weapons that we have, the power to demolish strongholds. Our weapons are not the weapons of the world. Rather, they have power to demolish strongholds. And that responding in the opposite spirit, what it means is that, well, let me read that quote from Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So it's when we're facing situations, maybe at workplace, where there's you know, an argument going on, there's contention going up, and we're writing it, maybe we're being criticised. Coming in the opposite spirit is bringing reconciliation. It's being calm. But it's not just doing that because we're nice people. It's doing it as an act of prayer, as an act of warfare. Um, when it's a situation of... We know that there's people not listening to us because, or, or not listening to the gospel because there's arrogance and pride. Well, moving in the opposite spirit is, is us walking in humility. There's the, the classic 
story from Youth with a Mission, and I'll get all the details wrong because it's such a long time ago, but there was an outreach to the Olympics, I think, um, where they were going out and preaching and nobody responding. It was really hard-hearted. People just didn't want to listen. And as they prayed and worshipped, they sensed there was a the spirit of pride over that city. And John Dawson heard the prayer strategy from, from the Lord to appoint people to go onto every street corner, every intersection, and just kneel on the ground and to pray. Just to humble themselves. How foolish it looked, how embarrassing it was, but to humble themselves and to pray. Pray for mercy on the city. Pray for mercy on the people who are coming to, I think it's the Olympics. And as they did that, people gathered around them and wondered what was going on. Something changed in the spiritual realm and people started to listen. People started to embrace what was being brought to them. So moving in the opposite spirit. Overcoming evil with good. And then at the bottom of the list, our identity in Christ. Barbara stole my thunder from my quote. <laughs> but that, this, this quote from Francis Frangipane. Victory begins with the name of Jesus on our lips. But it's consummated, it's only consummated with the nature of Jesus in our hearts. When I was a young Christian, spiritual warfare meant in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, doing warfare over everything. But the older I've got, and some would say wiser, I realise that 90% of something of spiritual warfare is won by when we recognise that we're God's beloved, that I already am righteous, that I'm already holy because what Christ has done. And so that warfare, that part of that warfare is over, which was over, you know, who are you? Um, are you really able to contend? Are you really able to stand on this? You know, you're, where, where the enemy would attack us with condemnation, then so much of that is won before anything else starts for just being so secure and who we are in Christ. That nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Nothing can remove us from that position of intimacy in the Father's family. And that is just such a powerful place to start intercession from. Um, and that's all I want to say on that. I'm going to ignore my second quote from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> showing great discipline. No, I'm not actually. I'm going to read it. I don't see why I shouldn't. Just don't tell Sarah. This is, this is Gandalf again. <clears throat> I love this. Some believe that it is only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. I have found it is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keeps the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. And that's a bit like we're saying about moving in the opposite spirit. It's not the great things that we do, it's the small acts of obedience and love and kindness which disarm the powers of darkness. So switching back again, the first position we looked at for spiritual warfare was standing, standing the ground. The second position is advancing. So we've got standing and advancing. See where I'm going with this? There's kind of a movement. And it's all to do with this thing of not just being satisfied with what's given us, but wanting to advance his kingdom. Wanting to, as a church, having a missionary call, um, 
wanting to bring God's kingdom from heaven into earth. Wanting to see people set free and brought into the freedom of Christ and set free from bondages and addictions and fears and lies and all kinds of things. And some of the key words, um, whereas in the first part it was about resisting and standing, some of the key words in the Bible that are used for this aspect of advancing are overcoming, pushing back. There's a story I um, love in the Old Testament. I guess it's one of my life verses. You know the life verses, those things that you keep coming back to, which God keeps speaking to you about. And uh, for some reason, this always, always touches me when I, when I read it. And it's a story about Caleb. And uh, Joshua has led the people of Israel into taking the land. It isn't all taken, but most of it is taken. And Joshua goes to see his old friend and colleague, Caleb, you remember in Joshua and Caleb were the two with the other spies who were sent into the land. And only Joshua and Caleb came back with a favourable report. Do you know that story? That was 40 years before. And in the intervening time, the Israelites had wandered around the wilderness. And eventually, when that generation had died, apart from Joshua and Caleb, then God brought them into the promised land. They started to defeat their enemies and stopped to occupy. Well, Caleb... Joshua goes to Caleb, this man who's now 85 years old, and he's come to bless Caleb. And in effect say, you've done your soldiering, you're 85 years old, this, you can have this land. And I imagine Caleb looking at Joshua in the eye, this little whippersnap of only 80, and saying, I haven't fulfilled what God's called me to do. This is Joshua 14, verse 10. This is Caleb speaking to Joshua. And now, as you see, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses. While Israel was journeying through the wilderness, and here I am today, 85 years old, I am still as strong today as I was on the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war, for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakin were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out as the Lord had said. Then Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. And I find that so inspiring. Caleb at 85 was still wanting to step into the promise that hadn't been fulfilled. He's still wanting to advance. He was still wanting to take what had been promised to him, not for him, for his children and his children's children. And he knew that that hill country, he was going to encounter many enemies on the way who were going to fiercely oppose them with their fortified um, citadels and cities. But he had a calling on his life that was higher than his own security. And it was to see the land promised to him and his tribe by Moses fulfilled and to claim that inheritance. And in the same way as a church, the people of God, we have a higher calling to see captives set free and people brought into their true freedom. And as we do that in in so many different ways of, of bringing God's love to people, as we pray and all other any other means at our disposal to see people know know people know Jesus. The the enemy will resist anything 
that um, the enemy will resist anything that sets people free and bring hope to them. He set, as Gary said, he has set strongholds around people, which is to do with just with the lies that people believe, the philosophies that they buy into, the fears that they come under, the deceptions they come under, fears of the future, fears of death, so many things. And those, those strongholds are like a, well, they are a stronghold over people. But God has given us the authority to tear down strongholds. And that's what spiritual warfare is in this thing of advancing. We've been given authority to tear down strongholds and everything which exalts itself above the knowledge of God in order that people can be brought out from that captivity into the freedom of knowing God. And I'm just going to ask Barbara to share one more story. That's all right. And then we're going to have a break. So we're trying to paint a picture of, in simple terms of spiritual warfare, being us standing the ground and us advancing. Yes, I'd... um... To me, that one was such an example that there is a spiritual world affecting things, but that sometimes we don't know. So we need to be obedient to God. And, and uh, I think I was, I'd just become a Christian and I was like so full of Jesus. And I was telling all my friends about Jesus. And I figured out that there was one girl in my class out of, we were a class of 16. One of them, she was a bit of a wobbly Christian, but still she was trying. So I said to her, hey, listen, why don't we pray every Thursday lunchtime for the, for our class, classmates that, you know, they will all get to know Jesus and then they'll all go to heaven. And, uh, so we prayed every Thursday and nothing was happening. It was so hard. Like I would talk to them, I would tell them. And so I went back to Jesus, say, but God, what's going on? And I heard so clearly, his, he told me that bit from Revelations where it says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And I felt Jesus say to me, you know, the word of your testimony is powerful. You've told them your testimony, you've told them about Jesus, but I want you to go back in your classroom and have communion. <laughs> and I'm like, what? By myself? But it was really clear, so I obeyed. I said, okay, Jesus, so I went earlier made sure nobody was in a classroom and I didn't even tell my friend because I thought she'd think I was a bit crazy. So I went to school early, I had communion in the classroom and I felt Jesus speak to me, say you need to bind the spirit of vain philosophy. So I said, okay, so I bind the spirit of vain philosophy in Jesus' name. And um on that morning the teacher of philosophy didn't show up, which was to me, it was such an eye-opener. I was like, wow, this is powerful. You know, God, when he says to do something, I don't know what happens, but I know that it's really amazing. And then subsequently, out of the 16 of us, eight of them became Christian. That's like 50% of the classroom. And, uh, yeah, so I think, you know, it's quite simple, really. It's just a life, oops, a life of obedience. And do what Jesus tells you to do, because... I think too when when we know the character of God, you know how much He loves us, how much you know He's not going to ask you something totally weird that you cannot do. You know He's going to say something down to earth like a daddy. He's not going to tell his kids to do something that he can't do. A dad would always say something that his child is able to do. So just obey, really. Brilliant. Thank you.